A quick note before we start. This podcast is about addiction and drug overdoses. So take care of yourself and anyone else who's listening with you. Previously on Death Resulting. When I found out about Liz, it poked me for her. It poked me for Josh. And I was scared. I was scared for him. We have an individual who died and whose unborn baby died as a result of Mr. Cook's conduct. And as a society, we have to have some way of acknowledging that human life has value. The underlying premise is that drug dealers are, are preying upon victims. Well, now you're prosecuting the victim. My addiction was way worse than Josh's. Like, I've done way worse than Josh did. And what do you know? I recovered. Like, so what are you saying? That my kid isn't worth that? In a lot of ways, Josh and Liz seemed to be from different worlds. Liz was 33 years old when she died. Josh was 20. Liz had a college degree and a job. Josh graduated high school inside juvenile jail and never had a job more than a few days. But one thing they had in common was that they used drugs together. They both lived the disease of addiction together. When you're down and out with people like that and you've got no one else but the people you're getting high with, I think you get like kind of like a strong bond. And me and Liz got a strong bond. And she said I was like her little brother. She, if I needed her, I'd call her. She would come pick me up if I was stranded. Just a few months before Liz died, something really terrible happened to Josh's mom, Shannon. She was shot. It happened when she confronted a guy who she says had beat up Josh a while earlier. She yelled at him. He pulled a gun. Shannon was rushed to the hospital, and eventually she recovered. But the whole thing, it really shook Josh up. When Josh first heard his mom was shot, he wasn't sure what to do or where to go. Then Josh says Liz and her boyfriend invited him to come stay with them. They took me into their house and, and like, cooked me pancakes and, like, stuff like that. Like, tried to, like, cheer me up and stuff because we thought she was dead for a while. Like, they wouldn't tell us anything. I did wonder about their friendship. Obviously, I'm missing an important perspective. I can't ask Liz if they were actually close. And as I said before, I reached out to several of Liz's family members, but they either didn't respond or declined to speak with me. Is it possible Josh is exaggerating the depth of their friendship to gain sympathy? For what it's worth, I think the evidence we do have supports the idea that Josh and Liz were close. The friendship is corroborated by Josh's mom, Shannon, and their family friend, Amy, who you heard from in the last episode. Prosecutors in Josh's case, who told me they have spoken with Liz's family, also refer to them as friends. And then there are the messages between Josh and Liz in the days leading up to her death. They're included in the police reports from the investigation into her overdose. In those messages, Liz and Josh negotiate on a price for the fentanyl. But they're clearly more than just a drug dealer and a drug user. They talk about Josh's girlfriend and Liz's boyfriend. 
When Josh gets anxious about his unstable living situation, Liz tells him not to panic. On the day she would fatally overdose, Liz was outside the hotel where Josh was staying, waiting for him to come down with the drugs. Josh was taking a long time, and Liz seemed to get impatient, so she texted him. Hurry up. We're family. The prosecutors, they don't really do me and Liz's friendship any justice. They just act like she was just some stranger. They don't want to say that she was my friend and that the situation really messes with me. Like, they don't... Like, I got to see mental health often about this situation specifically. Like, it really messes my head up. You know what I mean? This is Death Resulting. I'm Jason Moon. Josh will be sentenced at a federal courthouse in Concord, New Hampshire, in a building that feels like it was built to intimidate. Outside, it's a towering hulk of stone. Inside, it's modern angles of granite, glass, and light. There's no recording allowed in federal courthouses. I can't even bring my phone in with me, so you won't hear any audio from inside. But between the notes I took and the court transcript I got later, I can walk you through what happened. Inside the courtroom, only about a dozen people attend Josh Cook's sentencing. That's including the attorneys and the bailiffs. The lawyers are at their separate tables in front of the judge's bench. There's Murat Erkin, Josh's attorney, and two prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office, Georgiana McDonald and Seth Aframe. The rest of us sit on wooden pews behind them. There's Josh's mom, Shannon Nealon, his dad, Derek Cook, with his family, me and my co-producer, no other media, no one from Liz's family. We're all made to sit six feet apart. Everyone wears a mask. A door opens, and Josh is brought in through a side entrance. He's in a brown inmate uniform and a blue mask. He sits down next to Murat, who puts an arm on his back. It looks like maybe Josh just got his hair cut. He seems really young and nervous. The judge is late, 10 minutes late, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. People have quiet conversations. They go in and out to use the bathroom. Josh swivels in his chair. His mom fidgets with her car keys. For Shannon, just seeing her son across the room is really hard. She's crying a little. Then it seems like she's getting mad. She points at the prosecutors and says to no one in particular but just loud enough so they might hear. Do they know what a murderer is? The judge, Joseph LaPlante, finally arrives. He's in his 50s, a former prosecutor. He's chatty in a way that makes him seem less formal than I expect for a federal judge. He apologizes for being so late. Then he begins the hearing. In theory... Josh's fate is nearly sealed. His lawyer and the prosecutors have already agreed on a plea deal. That deal is, prosecutors drop the death-resulting charge and its 20-year mandatory minimum. In return, 
Josh pleads guilty to a lesser charge, and the judge sentences him to between 13 and 17 years. Really, the only thing left to happen in court is for each side to make their case for the exact number of years Josh should get within that range, 13 to 17 years. Typically, here's how a hearing like this might go. The prosecutor asks for the longest sentence, the defense asks for the shortest sentence, and the judge picks somewhere in between. Hearing adjourned. But this will not be a typical sentencing hearing. The surprises begin right away with the prosecution. I'm going to paraphrase what was said here based on the official transcript. One of the government attorneys, Seth Aframe, stands up to address the judge. And he goes off script. He asks that the judge sentence Josh to the lowest possible sentence under the agreement, 13 years. The judge seems intrigued. He calls it an interesting recommendation. He's eager to hear why the prosecution is making it. The prosecutor calls this case a constellation of tragedies. He says Josh committed a really serious offense. But he also says Josh's upbringing was tragic. And the prosecution believes the shortest sentence under the agreement, 13 years, is the best way to take all of those tragedies into account. It sends Josh to prison for Liz's death, but for significantly less time than what he would have faced at trial. In one way, this is good news for Josh. The prosecution agrees, to an extent, that Josh's childhood and his addiction make him less responsible for Liz's death. But in another way, this opening move from the prosecution throws a big wrench into Murat's plan for this hearing. Murat doesn't think 13 years is a fair sentence. He thinks it's too harsh, and that the government gave Josh no real options other than to take this deal. And so before the hearing, Murat told me about this kind of Hail Mary plan he had to try to get Josh a lighter sentence. Not just the lowest end of the plea deal, but even lower than that. Murat plans to try to get the judge to reject the whole plea deal on the grounds that it's too severe. The catch is, the judge knows both sides have made this agreement. He's read the details. So if Murat comes into court and asks the judge to throw away that deal, then Murat risks looking like he negotiated in bad faith. The judge might see it as Murat breaking the deal himself. That could be bad for Josh. It would probably annoy the judge, But more importantly, if Murat breaks the deal, then the prosecution isn't bound to it. They could put the death-resulting charge and the 20 or more years back on the table. So, Murat's plan is to somehow convince the judge to throw the deal away without actually asking the judge to throw it away. That was never going to be easy. And now... The prosecutor just made Murat's task even harder by asking for the most lenient sentence under the agreement. Murat stands up to address the judge. He starts by quoting one of the last things Josh messaged to Liz before she arrived at the hotel the day she died. Quote, 
Bring the money so I can stay warm, fed, and geeked out 24-7. Murat tells the judge it was these basic needs for shelter, food, and to avoid opioid withdrawal that drove Josh that day, not profit or malice. But right away, the judge interrupts him. He's confused. He's like, the prosecution has already asked for the lowest sentence under the agreement. Why are you making a big speech? Like, What more could you be asking for? Murat struggles to respond. Judge LaPlante asks him, are you recommending a different number? Murat says, no, judge, I'm constrained to recommend within the agreement. Judge, are you urging me to reject the agreement? Murat, I can't urge the court to reject the plea agreement. It's awkward, but eventually Judge LaPlante picks up on it. He sees that Murat is honoring the letter of the plea agreement, but not the spirit of it. But he doesn't seem to like it. As Murat carries on, Judge LaPlante pushes him hard at every step. But Murat keeps going, or tries to. He brings up Len Bias and the origin of death-resulting laws. He says Congress in the 80s meant to target kingpins, not addicted users like Josh. The judge, how can we know why hundreds of members of Congress voted for or against a piece of legislation? There's so many reasons people could vote for a 20-year minimum mandatory, and our Congress did. Murat is tripping over his words. The room is getting more tense. Judge LaPlante keeps forcing Murat back to the concept of culpability. The judge says he agrees that Josh's upbringing and his addiction make him less culpable. But he says that doesn't mean he's not to blame at all. He says to Murat, isn't there culpability when he's providing deadly drugs to A, another person, and B, a pregnant woman? Doesn't the court need to address that? Doesn't he need to be accountable for that in some way, to some degree? For me, watching from across the courtroom, this is the question, the one that started me down the rabbit hole on this story. How do we reconcile a legal system that looks to blame one person's overdose on another person's actions with the science that says addiction is a disease that controls those actions? Only here in this courtroom, it's not just a thought-provoking hypothetical in a podcast. Judge LaPlante will actually answer the question, at least as it applies to one defendant. And whatever he decides, it will have very real consequences for Josh. Before we go back to the sentencing hearing and close the book on Josh's story, there's one more person I want you to meet. She doesn't have a direct connection to Josh's case. And yet, maybe more than anyone, I think she deserves a chance to weigh in on death-resulting laws. I called her because I kept thinking about these unanswerable questions that haunt death-resulting cases. Would the victims of fatal overdoses want their deaths treated like murders? Like, is this what Liz would have wanted? And maybe most of all, I wondered, what would Len Bias say? Obviously, I can't ask him. But that's why I wanted to talk to his mom. 
I am Dr. Lanice Bias. I am the mother of the late Len Bias that died over 35 years ago, two days after being drafted by the Boston Celtics. He died of a drug-related death, and um, 42 months later, I lost a, a second son, Jay, to gun violence. And I used the deaths of these two young men as an opportunity to travel throughout the nation encouraging um, individuals. For decades, Lenise Bias has been a motivational speaker delivering speeches on living through tragedy and drug prevention. She's spoken at all kinds of events, from local churches and schools to the NCAA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, even the White House. And I want to be really clear about why we're bringing Lenise in at this point in the story. She's not a juror in Josh's case. She's not a stand-in for everyone who's lost someone they love to drugs. She's not a stand-in for black grief writ large. Lenise had reservations about being recorded. She didn't want her words to be manipulated to conform with an agenda. She agreed to talk for 30 minutes. She wound up giving me about 40. And I'm glad she did, because I think it's helpful just to hear her grapple with this question out loud. Is an overdose a murder? But first... I asked her to tell me about Len Bias, her son, not the basketball star. I did not give birth to rocket scientists. All of my children were C students, uh, and that was fine. When he says they were an average family, Len and his brother Jay used to play with a tape recorder. They'd pretend to be Muhammad Ali and the sports journalist Howard Cassell. She says Len loved art. He was curious about the things that caught his eye. If he saw something beautiful in nature, he would bring it home and show it to me. And uh, he would bring a stone and say, Ma, isn't this stone pretty? And I think as a parent sometimes, um, hindsight, I did not know that that was treasure then. I asked Lenise about her take on the war on drugs, how her son's story was used by politicians. But before she answered, she wanted to back up. When Len Bias died and all of this was going on, it takes years to come out of the funk and the dust and the hurt and the pain to try to even breathe again and to start trying to put your life back together. You, you, we were not concentrating on, oh, look what they're doing up on Capitol Hill. We're still trying to figure out what happened to our life. What happened? How did all of this come about? Lenise says to this day, she's not really that familiar with the details of the laws passed in the wake of her son's death. She's not a policy expert. She's a motivational speaker. But she does have a general feeling about the law. I'm sorry for so many people's lives that have been impacted by the death of Len via drugs. 
because of their use of drugs or selling drugs or whatever. I'm just so sorry. And I am an advocate for young people. I believe that they're reachable, teachable, lovable, and savable. And I am sorry, as I said before, for the, the people that um, were incarcerated because of a law that was done to bring prevention and it has not stopped anything. It's only grown. It bothers Lenise that we don't do a better job of intervening with kids who are on a path toward addiction, that schools don't have better tools for drug prevention. I asked Lenise whether she thinks fatal overdoses should be thought of as murders. And she kind of worked through the question out loud. There were moments when it sounded to me like she thought, no. It's complex. I'm not putting myself out there saying that anyone who sells someone a drug is responsible for their death. But another moment where it sounded like maybe, yes. We, the, the individual that sold the drugs, he should, he should be charged with murder. But what is it? I mean, is it manslaughter or homicide? I mean, you can go into so many uh, variables. But it felt like the bigger point she was trying to get across to me was that it doesn't so much matter what her specific opinion is on this. It's not going to be a black or white. It, it's, it's a lot in the gray area, and it's not going to be just, just, just my opinion. And in the conversation, you have to be able to take, take the meat and throw the bones away. You know what I mean? You have to take little pieces from what everyone is saying and come up with your own conclusion. Back in the courtroom, both sides' lawyers have had their turn to speak. And now it's Josh's turn. He unfolds a paper he has with him. But when he starts to read it, he breaks down. He says, I'm not ready. Judge LaPlante reads it out loud instead. The letter reads in part, Thinking about potentially doing all this time at my age scares the life out of me. I don't belong in federal prison. I'm still young and don't know who I am yet. And being around the types of people I'm around is going to shape me into a man I don't want to be. I'm begging everyone to reconsider, please. Judge LaPlante calls a brief recess to talk with the attorneys in his chambers. After five or ten minutes, they come back out. Judge LaPlante says he's ready to decide. He starts by praising the prosecutors. He says they've been extremely lenient. He says just now he offered the prosecution the chance to withdraw the plea agreement on the grounds that Murat violated it with his speech today, exactly what Murat was afraid might happen. Luckily for Josh, the prosecution let it go. And still, the judge spends maybe five or seven minutes on this, laying out all the ways the prosecution was merciful and worthy of praise dropping the death-resulting charge in the plea deal, asking for the shortest sentence under the deal at the hearing. And so it really surprised me when the judge said, I do reject the plea agreement 
I think it's too severe. I don't know if Murat's Hail Mary plan kind of worked or if the judge made up his own mind, regardless of what Murat said in court. Either way, Judge LaPlante says the court believes the appropriate sentence in this case is 120 months. It's a very severe sentence. It's 10 years in prison, but it's not the 20 years that the statute called for, and it's not as high as this plea agreement. Judge LaPlante tells both sides to come back with a new plea agreement that says 10 years on it, and he'll sign it. And just like that, it's over. Hearing adjourned. Outside, on the courthouse steps, I caught up with Shannon. Yeah, that was devastating seeing Josh crying like that. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. He was born an innocent boy, you know. Um, This is going to be a hard day. We were very lenient in the way we treated Mr. Cook. Uh, As I said, under the strict application of the sentencing guidelines, he could have been facing far more than 20 years. Do I think that 10 years is an appropriate uh, sentence? No, I don't think it's an appropriate sentence. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it just, they just can't let go of, 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 of locking people up as the solution here. And I, and I just, I guess I just question, like, what, what have we improved by locking Joshua up for 10 years? What's made, what's made better by this? Nothing the judge could have given me could make Liz come back or make the hurt I have for what happened to Liz seem smaller because that is the worst thing that could have happened. Jail, jail sucks, yes, but it's never going to hurt me as much as losing Liz hurts me. After the sentencing hearing, Josh was taken back to county jail, to the same jail he'd been in for almost three years. That time will count toward his sentence, by the way. About five months after that day in the courtroom, Josh was finally transferred to the federal prison system. But in that span, before he was transferred, something important happened to Josh. For the first time, he says he was given access to the medication-assisted addiction treatment program at the jail. He was prescribed Suboxone. Suboxone is a drug combination that blocks opioid receptors in the brain and staves off withdrawal symptoms. The federal government calls it the gold standard for opioid addiction treatment. But it can be abused, and so it's tightly controlled inside the jail. Yeah, they wake everybody that's on Suboxone up and they bring us to another room where they give it to us and it has to dissolve under your tongue and they stand there with a flashlight in our face so we can't cheek it for 10 minutes while it dissolves. Then we have to stick our fingers in our mouth to search our mouth even though there's COVID in the building. And then they make us eat uh, graham crackers and and a loaf of a piece of bread after to make sure we don't have any saved, like, in our cheeks or throat. It's freaking crazy. 
it's not exactly a humanizing addiction treatment experience. But Josh says the Suboxone is making a big difference for him. It's going good. I don't have any cravings anymore. It's like blocking it out. And this is the first time you've been prescribed Suboxone, right? Yeah, ever. Yep. It's a new thing they do in the jails to help people stay clean. It's hard to ignore the fact that Josh's first exposure to what the government says is the most effective treatment for opioid addiction comes now, after Josh spent almost a decade either incarcerated or on probation. Still, on this last phone call I had with Josh, he sounded almost optimistic. Maybe if it's a popular story, you can do a follow-up on me when I get out. Maybe if, I'm doing, if I'm doing good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I hope I'm doing good. I think yeah. I will be, though. I, 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 Like I said, my brain's wired different now. When people talk about drugs now around me, I walk away. I don't even want to be involved in the conversation. And believe me, I got more stories, too, but I don't want to talk about them. Josh was transferred into the federal prison system in November of 2021. In the judge's official sentencing document, he recommended that Josh be sent to the Bureau of Prisons' most intensive drug treatment program. It's a 9- to 12-month program called RDAP. He also recommended that Josh be sent somewhere in or near New Hampshire so his parents can visit. But as I'm recording this, Josh is at a federal prison in West Virginia, about a 10-hour drive away, at a location that does not have an RDAP program for men. It's also unclear if Josh will be able to stay on Suboxone. In the entire federal prison system, as of July 2021, only 2% of people eligible for medication-assisted treatment were receiving it. That's according to a report from the Marshall Project. What did Josh deserve? Was 10 years a light sentence for a murder? Was this a reasonable compromise that accounts for both the science of addiction and the idea of personal responsibility? Or was this an absurd punishment for an accidental death? Why does the prosecutor say this will send a message when his own agency's research says it won't? How is this not another chapter in a failed war on drugs? These questions matter because tens of thousands of people will die of drug overdoses next year. Should we do this each time? Okay. All right, am I allowed to ask? Uh, you got to have an opinion. What's your opinion? Death Resulting was created by the document team at New Hampshire Public Radio. This episode was reported by me, Jason Moon, and Lauren Chuljan. The executive producer is Jack Rodolico. The executive editors are Dan Barrick and Rebecca Lavoie. Additional editing by Lauren Chuljan, Todd Bookman, Felix Poon, Gabrielle Healy, and Christina Phillips. Callan Tansel-Suttoth was our production intern. 
Fact-checking by Sarah Sneath. Artwork distribution and promotion by Sarah Plord. Music by me, Jason Moon. You can find more of our reporting online at nhpr.org slash document.